Released on Monday, September 21st, 2015. This Agile Life, Episode 100, First Agile Experience. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. On this very special 100th episode of This Agile Life, all of the hosts sit down to share their first experience with Agile. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Ugly projects, that is, not ugly hosts. I think you got that meaning, hopefully. First up, we have Nate Mackey. Nate has been with the show since our very first episode, and I always look forward to talking with Nate. Hey, Nate, how are you? I'm doing just great. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. It's great to sit down with you on the 100th episode of This Agile Life and find out a little bit more about how you got started with Agile. Yeah, pretty amazing that we've made it this far. 100 episodes. Now, does that... Does that count uh, the fact that we were zero indexed? Yeah, this is so. This is officially one hundred and one. <laughs> but I, I think for the for the sake of the listening audience, we'll just we'll let that we'll 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 sweep that under the rug. Fair enough. Okay. So how did it all begin? What what's what's got you started with Agile? Well, it, for me, it started with a failed project. Um, we were doing a project for our best client at the time. I was working for Synchrony then, and I was leading a project, was also a developer, and uh, had tried it uh, the the best way I knew how, which was to have a very technical developer who could write specs that developers could read, uh, write all the specs, tell the developers exactly what to do, break the the system out into layers, um, have everybody build their part and put it all together at the end, and it should just work beautifully. And it did not work beautifully. (laughs) And what uh, what should have been one or two weeks of final testing ended up being three months of massive repair work uh, and a good portion of it because we had a developer who really did not know what they were doing and we didn't figure that out until pretty late in the process. So I figured at that point there had to be a better way. I had run into some other people who had talked about extreme programming and and had started looking into it and finally sat down and read through uh, Kent Beck's book, Extreme Programming book, and said this is exactly the right way that, to do things. So uh, that was 2003. We talked to the same client that we had the failed project for. We talked them into trying it differently this time. And uh, they they were on board, and we tried it out. And we went by the book as much as we could. Um, we actually, we, we did everything that was in there. We did it the way that it was all recommended and uh, struggled quite a bit uh, until we got some coaching. So um, yeah, uh, but the, it's interesting. We, the, the only thing they didn't really want to do was pair programming. Everything else, everyone was on board, but pair programming was the, the last to come along. And was it the client that didn't want to do the pair programming or was it the developers that didn't want to do it? It was the developers. The client was up for whatever we wanted to try. It was the developers, really, who just didn't didn't understand how that was going to be helpful. Did they uh, share any insights into why they why they felt that way? Yeah, I think it was the typical, you know, 
we'd be a lot more effective if we all just do this on our own. We can move a lot faster. I don't really need help from anyone else. I'll, I'll call you over if I need you and we'll pair, you know, when, when we need to work something out. But for the most part, I'm good to go. And yeah, this all makes sense to me. Let's move forward. Sounds like you started with the extreme programming engineer, a lot of the engineering practices. Were you also using some of the practices with, um, uh, the, the, the card creation and small stories and all of that sort of thing initially? We did. We didn't, some of the things we didn't quite understand, so we didn't use them. The, uh, uh, some of the card, you know, uh, I, I think the interfaces, using cards as interfaces and to describe messages, we didn't quite understand what Kent was getting at with that. But pretty much, yes, everything that was in there, the planning game uh, that was there, uh, we even Kent even recommended having a tracker be part of the project to kind of do some administrative work, and we got somebody involved in that. So we were doing as, as much as we could by the book. Was it a night and day difference? Or you, I know you said you struggled, but it was interesting that you had a, a client that you did it nor, the old way with and then yeah. a client that you did it the agile way with. So what were the, some of the differences? To me, it was a failure, but you know, ultimately we got the work done. We had smart people and we were able to fix everything and they had a successful project that was just a couple of months late. Uh, so they were, they understood that, you know, it, what we did wasn't good, but they were up for us trying something new and, and trusted us because we, we had done several successful things for them. So we did see a difference because we immediately began to see that we were developing working software all along the way instead of right at the end. And the customer was very excited about being able to see something that actually they could, they could tr- try out and give feedback to and install on their site. So they were very excited. Uh, we were having a great time with uh, learning about automated testing and, and getting that and continuous integration. I remember I was the cruise control guy and got that all figured out and uh, thought it was incredibly fun to see all that be automated and see the red and green builds and, and all of that. So we were having a great time. And what were your uh, personal initial reactions to the use of extreme programming and agile practices on the project? Well, like I said, we we saw the benefits and we right away, we saw that this was a great way to go. I think we, however, quickly figured out that we didn't know what we were doing. Uh, and we started building a lot of stuff that that wasn't ideal. So we were building tests that were way too fragile. Uh, we We outsmarted ourselves with some of the tests that we did. We actually, uh, one of the first things I built was... Uh, this was in Java. And so I built a, a JDBC implementation that would take your query and run it against a database and create XML files that represented the results. So then you could test your query over and over against XML and not have to hit the database every time. And that seemed like a great idea until we had to maintain it. And then it became a complete nightmare. So we, you know, we went overboard. We didn't quite get it. And, and our tests took too long and had too many assertions in them and all the, you know, all the rookie mistakes. So we quickly sought out some help. We found a coach to come in and, uh, and teach us what, how TDD was really supposed to work, uh, opened our eyes to maybe going further than we thought we should in some cases, but, but also backing away from some of the things we felt like we, we needed to do. And, uh, and that, that moved us along uh, significantly as well. But in general, everybody seemed to like it. And very quickly, this style caught on across the company. We had one small team that was doing it. And then that team kind of broke up and spread around the company. And 
I infected everyone else. So it, you know, two, three years later, the entire company was completely on board. The transformation, if you will, it sounds like it happened very organically as opposed to it being some sort of a concerted effort. It was kind of like, hey, we discovered that there's this newer way to work, a different way to work that seems to be better. And it just sort of permeated itself into the, into the entire company. Yeah. Now, I would say it's probably a mix. I think we, as management, were so excited about how it worked that we probably uh, did more than we should have to, to force the issue. So we had a policy, for example, uh, once, we, once we got everybody to do pairing, once we got them to try it, people really liked it. And our conclusion was, hey, developers don't want to do this naturally. You have to make them do it. So in the beginning, we actually had a policy that every team would only have half as many computers as they had developers to work on just to force them to do it. And there was some backlash to that that uh, was fairly significant that, that uh, you know, it took me a while. I, I was totally on board with that. And that was a, a lesson learned for me was it doesn't make sense to force people to do these these practices. They need to buy into them. They need to understand what they're about. They need to understand the value or they're just simply not going to do it. And you're going to end up losing good people over it. That was a big lesson. So you think you would have done that differently? I do. I think if I could go back that uh, a lot of it, like I said, worked, worked itself out. And I think that if we had given the pair programming a chance to do the same thing, if we had let the teams make the mistakes that they were going to make if they didn't pair and use that as a, hey, this is an experiment. Why don't you try this out? See how it works. But I think uh, we, we could have avoided some, some issues that we had later on. But, but oh, I, I think we learned, even learned that lesson uh, pretty quickly because probably about a year in, we, we stopped that policy and, uh, and basically let the teams decide do you want to pair or not? And over time, they all decided that's what they wanted to do. Uh, if, if push came to shove today, would you, would you do a project and, and use what I would consider more traditional methods and say, you know, we're no agile practices at all? Or, or do you think that that'd be almost nearly impossible just logistically? Well, it's interesting. About uh, a couple years after we did the project, we ended up with a project for uh, a large military contractor where we thought, you know, we can agilize anything. And when they came in and they gave us this particular project, a basic project was write automated tests for an API that another group is developing. And so we were just writing the tests and we tried very hard in the beginning to make writing tests test driven. Uh, and you can do it, but it doesn't add a whole lot of value. And we figured that out. And after a while, we said, you know what? This probably makes more sense to do in a more waterfall fashion. Let's see, here's the list of things we have to do. They're fairly atomic. There's not a lot of uh, sharing of information or code in between them. Let's just crank through these, create a, your basic project plan and, uh, and walk through them. And, and that, that was what we had to do. So when it comes down to it, I think if there were a project where it made sense to work that way, we could do it but we haven't found too many. What do you think is the biggest thing that you maybe learned uh, throughout your, your travels as, a, as an agile journeyman and a practitioner through all these years? The big thing for me, like uh, kind of going along with what we said already, is that people need to buy in to whatever you're going to do. So 
uh, our company has been asked to do agile transformations for other companies because they see what we do. They walk our spaces, culture programming together and the big screens with Kanban boards on them. And they say, that's what we want. Make us do that. And we have honestly given that a try walking in and just saying, okay, here's the right way. Everybody do this. And it just doesn't work. It, it just, uh, you can, you can maybe get some benefit out of that. And over time, if you stick with it long enough, you can probably get enough buy-in to make it work. But for the most part, what we found is even if we sold a small group of people, it doesn't take, doesn't really catch on thread. I feel like being small incremental changes that make sense to people is the way to truly get them to change and not trying to jump in with a brand new way of working that, that doesn't make any sense to them that they're just doing because you told them to. That's excellent information to share with the audience. And I have one final question for you, Nate. Where do you see the future of Agile heading in the next three to five years? Well, my hope is that, that these lessons that we've learned will also be start, start to become the reality for a lot of these other organizations because we've just seen too many examples where people come, whatever it is, and say, here is the way, this is how everyone is going to work. And, and we've also even seen some companies that try to invent their own agile methodology and force everyone to do it. And it just doesn't work. And ultimately, it creates a backlash that makes people feel like agile doesn't work at all. So I see, two, I see it going two ways. One is you have a complete backlash across the industry and all the people who love project plans and love estimates and being able to track things uh, start to gain traction and the pendulum swings the other way. Or people realize that the, the lessons that were learned in Japan and all the other places that have tried Lean and Kaizen is that you make the changes in a way that, that fits within your process as it is today and you get better and better. And maybe you work toward a more agile way of operating because it will work, it can work if you, if you have enough full buy-in and, and culture change across your teams but that takes time and it's not something you're going to walk in and be able to do. So my, my hope is that's the lesson that we learn. But my fear is that the, the pendulum is just going to swing the other way and we're going to end up fighting the same battles we were fighting 10 years ago. So um, hard to predict, but that's, I see it going one, one way or the other. I certainly hope it doesn't go the bad way. We'll have to keep fighting the good fight to make sure it doesn't. Nate, thank you for uh, being part of this Agile Life and for sitting down with me to do this interview for episode 100. It has certainly been a pleasure having you as a part of this podcast for, oh, these many years now and, and many podcast episodes. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, John. I, I really have enjoyed being part of it. I wish I could be on more often, but I always love it when I am. And it's, uh, it's been great to see it grow and, and the audience out there. I definitely want to thank them, all the folks that listen to us and and respond and want to get involved. We, we love hearing from all of you and it's, it's great to hear those success stories. So we're just glad that we can be a little bit of a part of, of the successes that are going on out there. This AgileLife.com Next up is Lee McCauley. Lee started on This Agile Life as our sound guy, but we finally managed to coax him up to the mic. I've had the pleasure of working shoulder to shoulder with Lee and hope to get the chance again someday. 
Hey, Lee, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great, John. I am so happy to actually get a chance to talk to you. Tonight. That's right. Just, just you and me. I know. We never it's just like, get to talk to each other. I know. I think the last time might have been at a bar, but then that was like a year ago. Ages ago, it feels like. Yeah. So we're sitting down with each host from This Agile Life and talking about their experiences on their first Agile project. And Lee, what was, what was your first Agile project? When was it? Eons well, ago also? It, it was eons ago. Um, so it had to be, uh, I couldn't pinpoint the exact time, but it had to be somewhere around uh, 1995 or 96. Um, the reason why I say this is because I was in graduate school and I happened to be the, the senior researcher in this, in this uh, research team, which meant I was kind of the de facto lead, but nobody ever said that. Um, I just happened to be the one that was getting paid the most to be there. I see. Um, and all the other, uh, researchers by researchers, I mean, students, uh, were, were younger than me. So I had just read these two awesome books by Kent Beck and, uh, Martin Fowler. Um, one was the planning uh, book. These were the, the, uh, extreme programming books, right? Yes. So my first agile project was actually me suggesting we try these things in our research group. So this was really interesting because you have all these people doing, uh, similar things, but not the same code base. Uh, it was me trying to decipher what uh, this extreme programming thing was from their books and having no outside help whatsoever. Just the so, books. Just the books. And, 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 and back in 95, 96, there wasn't really subreddits you could go on or the, uh, even, even a very popularized internet that you could use, right? Exactly. Um, I, there might've been something I might could have found on gopher at the time, <laughs> but, uh, to be honest, I didn't check. Right. Um, but to suffice it to say that I was going off of sparse information, which is more of an excuse. I'm trying to make an excuse for myself because it failed miserably. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say miserably. There were some benefits that occurred. Um, but. I, I, I didn't know anything about what I was doing. So what were some of the basics that you were using from, uh, from the books as you were, as you were reading them and trying to flex that into how you were working on the research projects? So at the time I remember trying to do the planning game. Um, and that was probably the primary thing. And then trying to break everything down into, into small chunks but of course, small chunks, I had no idea what small really meant. Um, there's no way I would have thought a couple hours like what I think now, right? Yeah. Uh, small chunks back then was a week or two. Sure. You know? And even then, that was flexible. Um, and there was no such thing as a, as a, a Kanban board. Um, there was no pair programming. Okay. Um, it was planning and small stories 
and see how it goes. Were you were you writing on three by five index cards at all or trying to organize things and using index cards? We were using the index cards, which I wrote it all down on index cards and it worked really well for the planning part of it because we could see what we had. But after that, it's like, okay, now what do I do with the cards? I had no clue. So I now had the stack of cards. Gee, um, what am I supposed to do with this? What were some of your initial reactions to what you were reading and, and how it was working for you? I, I got some, some small glimpses that this could be a really good thing if I knew what the hell I was doing. Um, so the planning part, for example, I could tell that we were breaking down our tasks and uh, the rather large amount of things that we needed to get done into manageable chunks. We were discovering um, issues we hadn't thought of previously. We had these, these weekly research meetings, which were mainly more philosophical discussions about what we were researching and, and a little bit about what we were finding. But of course, this is computer science research, which meant you're writing code and running programs and it's not like I can say, oh, these, uh, these hundred trials just indicated this value. Uh, not at, the, at that point, you know? Right. So, uh, so the, the research meetings had nothing to do with actual code being written. They were just philosophical artificial intelligence sort of, a, sort of discussions. Um, but then we also had this stuff for the Navy we were trying to do to, uh, to revamp how they gave out jobs to sailors that were, that were rotating from one position to another. Um, the Navy really did want to, to uh, give the sailors the jobs that they wanted. They wanted, wanted to keep them, right? But that also meant figuring out if I'm going to switch from this job at this time and I need training X in order to go to my next job, then how do I get them there before the boat leaves, right? Yeah. When do they have to leave to get to the training? Which training are they going to go to? Um, and all that also depends on where they want to end up being stationed. Uh, what jobs do they want, you know, for a long-term sort of thing? It's almost like the old traveling salesman program to some extent. Exactly. It was, yeah. it was very much, there was a, there were two, two main components. One was a a scheduling sort of a, a component to figure out that thing. And there was another component where at the time they would send emails to their, I forget what the term was, but it was basically the other, the person that was going to help them get into their next billet. We thought we could get this system to read their emails and be able to handle 80% of the, of the jobs because they were all pretty much routine. If we could just figure out what the job was that they wanted, and that sort of thing, then we could figure out the rest from standard scheduling algorithms. And well, I won't say standard. We were trying to create a, a conscious system. So uh, you were researchers after all, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so just using the same old stuff wasn't good enough. Right, right. Needless to say, there were lots of pieces to this thing. Was this your first time developing software? Yes and no. Okay. I mean, I had, I had done small, small things. Uh-huh. Um, my, my first job actually was writing uh, DB4 code for a small consulting firm in Memphis, Tennessee, which is an interesting story in itself, I suppose. 
but it also meant that I was very spoiled because I never had to go flip burgers or any of that kind of stuff. I've coded all my professional life. It wasn't that it wasn't my first coding job, but it was the biggest job right. that I had had to do at the time. I asked that mainly because you had a perspective on other ways to do it. It wasn't as if the first way you ever tried to do software, tried to write a pro, uh, uh, some software for the computer was uh, following some agile practices. Oh, no. Yeah. So you had done it, you know, Wild West style or somebody just uh, barking orders style before you, before you tried this way. Basically. Yeah. And, and uh, testing was, you know, unit testing was completely foreign. And, and so where, what happened after, after that, did you kind of have a, a journey of some projects that were non-agile, some projects that were agile before you finally moved into a position where you were doing agile most of the time? After being a, uh, a research assistant, I got a job teaching. So, and being a researcher as well, I was an assistant professor at the University of Memphis. And uh, I did that for six years. So in that process, I found out that uh, I don't actually get to write much code. Uh, instead, I end up, ended up leaving it to the students most of the time, which is a horrible way to, uh, to do cutting-edge software, believe me. <laughs> um, let's take the least experienced people on the planet uh, that can still actually write code and ask them to do the most advanced things possible. Sounds like a bad combination, to say the least. Yes. Um, and not that they weren't awesome people, but there was a limit to, to what their experience could do. Of course, yeah. Yeah. After my research, or as a research assistant, after my attempt to do this, and being only seeing glimpses of something that I thought was useful, and it was way more overhead than the rest of the team felt was, was warranted, then I don't think I used any of those practices again until I got a job in St. Louis with the company I currently work for. And that was in 2008. So there was a big gap there. When, when you got that job and when you heard what they were going to be doing and how they were doing it, did you did you think back to that 95, 96 research project days and think, oh boy, I, I've done this before and, and had some mixed results? Well, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say that. I, my, my attitude at the time was, oh great, somebody's going to show me what the hell I was screwing up. <laughs> I hope that at least I, I acted as though, oh yeah, I'd heard those terms before in order to get the job. That was about the most I could say. Were there things that you had done where you, uh, you, you still see value in, in what you were trying to do and, and could you, did, were you able to kind of feel that and, and, and maybe even articulate that to others at the time? I don't know. I, th I think so. I think I, that when people ask, you know, well, how is this thing working out? And I could say that I definitely feel like I had a better handle on the scope of the software we were writing. Um, it was the, it was the first time I'd actually tried to even create a farther reaching sort of a, sort of an outlook on what all the pieces were that needed to be built in the past. I would just say, okay, here's a problem that needs solving. I'll go solve that. And then what's the next problem that needs to get solved? Oh, let's go solve that. You know, 
There was no concept of let's, and sure, you might have this vague sort of notion of where everything is going to fit in the long term, but there was never this concept of let's actually figure out what the pieces are and if there are any uh, dependencies between different parts of this code that we're not seeing in just a, a quick overview. So I think that part I really could see the benefit of, and I could say, yeah, that's, that's got some, some real possibilities. All right, Lee. Well, I'd like to wrap up our conversation by uh, asking you to tell the future. <laughs> and based on the, the trends that you see in your job and the work that you do and the conversations that we have here and all the things that are going on in industry, what do you think you're gonna, we're going to see changing or evolving in the world of Agile in you know, maybe the next three to five years? Um, I think there's going to be a reevaluation of what the term agile actually means. Um, this, uh, this goes to the discussions that seem to be happening a lot on the internet now that I see about people saying, oh, um, agile isn't working because of these prescriptive things. And I think that the term has gotten conflated and gotten um, hijacked to some degree. And so I, I think we're going to have to... Uh, to go back to basics to some degree and think about what is it that we really liked about the Agile Manifesto? What was it that is the core of that? And I personally, I think that goes all the way back to a culture of improvement. And if you start there, the rest is, um, is just best practices at the time and with the total idea that best practices change as we learn more um to, to some degree some people have have equated this to kind of the scientific method right we're constantly having experiments and being willing to change the way we work based on the outcome of those experiments and so to me that is the heart of agile and i think the term agile may even go away and who knows, maybe somebody will come up with some other term, right. but, but, uh, the heart of it, which is this, how do we constantly improve the way that we write software? To me, that's what the future is, is going to hold. And I guess that's also my optimistic nature that that's what it's going to hold as opposed to, it's going to go all the crap. I, I think you've, uh, you've got quite a beat on it. That's a, an, an excellent prediction, Lee. Lee, thanks for taking some time to sit down with me and, and give us some history on your background. And it's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you as a host of This Agile Life. Thank you very much, John. I always enjoy talking to, to you and all the guys and girls. ThisAgileLife.com Next, we hear from Natalie Simonson. Natalie is our newest host, and we can always count on Natalie to bring a fresh perspective into our conversations. That is, when we can tear her away from her raids in the world of Warcraft. Hey, Natalie, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you, John? Oh, I'm doing really great. I'm glad you could take some time to sit down and share your experiences as you got started in, in your Agile life. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So what was that like? What was, what was your first agile project experience 
Well, there's was some drama to it. Drama. <laughs> I love drama for podcasts. So um, I was, uh, the organization that introduced Agile, I, I was not part of that uh, at the time. And so it was announced that uh, our, essentially our IT department was going to take a, an Agile approach. And I was in a different organization at the time. And uh, our organization's leadership basically told us, let's make this fail. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like a good little minion, I was not uh, always, you know, sort of like, yeah, I, I wasn't in full support of it, but I wasn't sort of very destructive with it either. Then I got assigned to a project uh, in my role. My role at that time was the cross between a product owner and a product analyst. And um, I instantly fell in love. So I felt like a trader, <laughs> but uh, so over time, um, I, I actually, while I was on the project within the first, I think six or so months, I decided that I wanted to be part of this and, and, and actually moved organizations uh, into uh, a scrum master role. Uh, as due to my experience on that first project, the thing that, uh, that really struck me having been in uh, product development for uh, about eight, eight or nine years prior to that was the, the approaches that we were taking fixed all of the heartache and anguish uh, for the most part uh, that, that I had experienced in product development the, the eight years prior. It was like the lights went on. It was that aha moment. Angels were singing. It was fabulous. So this is interesting because you were part of you were you you kind of had had people uh, that you reported to that were telling you this is not going to work, agile is not going to work, agile is going to fail, and and we should help it fail a little bit. And then as you got into it, you were like, "This is so great that you guys are all wrong," and I love agile. Yes, I was I was so excited to about it, and I I started to become a like a somewhat of a change agent within my own organization saying, basically saying our leadership is wrong. This actually works. We, you know, we need to, to educate up and try and, um, and, and try and make them see the light. Uh, and you know, footnote to that, the leadership that, uh, that the specific person that, that pushed for that is no longer part of that organization and we are still agile. So I guess we proved him wrong. <laughs> Win for Agile. Yes. What did you know prior to being kind of baptism by fired into this Agile project? What did you know about Agile? Had you heard about it? Um, did you did you get any, you know, did had you read about it previously or done any research on it or anything? No, I had not actually. And when uh, when the, the buzz started coming out that this was going to be our approach, I started reading um, and it, it Sure, that makes sense. Um, previously, we were so when when I first started product development, uh, we didn't have any project management whatsoever, and we we just basically figured it out, got together like this is what we want to do, and then you know years later, uh, new leadership, the the one the anti agile leadership, uh, brought in a PMO. Uh, so and so they had a lot of vested. Uh, interest in sustaining that PMO, which sort of uh, was the the um, underlying drive between wanting to make Agile fail because it was a loss of power. So 
Um, but at, so back to my uh, agile knowledge, I, I started reading up on it, but then um, the people that were part of the agile transformation uh, were were incredibly helpful and open. And I had several friends in that organization that I'd worked with for many years in product, you know, developing products uh, that that were aware of it. Uh, in particular, one person, Steve Womack. Uh, and so he was probably one of my greatest uh, mentors in uh, in helping me understand those approaches and everything. And and, you know, you know, Steve, so you know that he talks with excitement and passion and that becomes infectious. He was probably one of the, the best people you could have been tied to in terms of getting started, at least from certainly from the the infectious passion part of and part of that all. Yes. And it was actually funny. I previous uh, prior to the, the actual transformation, I've worked on worked on projects with Steve before. And I think in that looking in hindsight, um, looking, I see that there were some things that Steve did that where he. Uh, without any fanfare, introduced some Agile concepts uh, and practices without any, like without saying, hey, this is Agile, we should try this. He just said, hey, we should get together every morning and talk about what we're planning to do that day because we're at a crunch time with the project. And so later on, I said to him, you know, like once we'd gone, once I knew better, that we were doing that. We were actually adopting those practices because it made sense because we were in, you know, like as a team, we were trying to to work through these problems and we wanted to, and one of the major problems we had on that particular project was keeping people accountable. And so that daily conversation really helped with that. Uh, and I think Steve had a lot of, uh, a, a large hand in, in us sort of, you know, sort of uh, trending or turning to, to some of those practices. So did you, what were your initial reactions um, when you realized that what you were doing, you know, that you were now on an agile project, what did you, were you, were you scared, concerned, um, you know, felt out of control? What were your initial reactions? Uh, initially I, I was skeptical, like, you know, and sort of, it was like, I, I had a very much of a prove it attitude. Um, and, but then it, as we, as time went on, it it certainly um, changed to looking at uh, my my scrum master at the time. I'm like, I could do that. I'd like to do that. But initially, it was skeptical, and I wanted to to see evidence that it was working. That I, you know, that you could actually uh, that there was there was some meat to it. A lot of uh, commentary around the agile transformation was oh, this. It, it's very touchy feely hippie shit, you know, like that was a big sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, negative comment or theme that uh, people outside of the transformation had. And additionally, we had um, our roles across the organization that were, had traditionally been involved in the development of our products were not the standard defined roles that Scrum prescribes. And we we took the Scrum approach with our Agile transformation. Um, and uh, they, so that, that was a fearful time because a lot of people felt, well, I'm, I'm not a, a developer. I'm not a Scrum master and I'm not a PO. Does that mean I don't have a job here anymore? And so I think that fed into a lot of people's behaviors and uh, mine included uh, that, uh, that well, I don't have a job here. I it's, I'm not part of this. I'm outside from this. Um, and uh, looking back over the last 
four or, or four or so years now, I there are a lot of things that I would do different if I was leading a, a transformation, um, or you know, certainly at the very beginning. You know, so I came in while we were still going through the transformation, but the introduction of it is such a sensitive and tricky undertaking, and so often it comes off with. I don't know how you guys did anything before this. You're a bunch of idiots. You know, like this this uh, PM approach is just absolutely ridiculous. Um, project management's for the devil. And, you know, and villainizing this a whole other approach when, you know, give props. It worked. It wasn't the best. And this is another way of approaching it. Um, because I think that, that that just, people just got, uh, they, they made the decision to not want it. Uh, to not want to even give it a, a try without, so there was no opportunity for them to see the benefits of um, agile practices. Those sorts of comments are things that sh- that should be reserved for people just like me to say and use <laughs> on a on a podcast to uh, incite incite strong emotions in people, but should not be part of uh, a real business transformation where people's jobs are affected and people are, are scared and concerned about being able to feed their families. You have to be a, a little bit more considerate of, of how you're going about some of those changes. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned the hippie shit, Natalie, as you, <laughs> as it, as it was, uh, as you described it, what was, what, why do you think that that was a negative that getting people more in touch with feelings and emotions as it relates to the work that they're doing is, is negative. I mean, you just, just look at the, the industry that, you know, software development, people don't want to say the F word, right? So feelings. <laughs> yes, the feelings word. Um, so, so that was, they a, say a the other F word a lot. They say the, the other F word, the real F word a lot in software. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a big offender there, but, um, and then, uh, the, the other thing is that you know, sort of a lot of the, the things that we talk around around agile and being a servant leader and, and the, the um, personality traits that go along with this, uh, that people w- were not part of traditional management. We're not a traditional style. That other, you know, that we we had a lot of command and control people. They wanted, you know, I am ruler of all I survey. So, you know, that that also fed into the the loss of control feeling that that people um, were, you know, managers were were shut out of teams and weren't supposed to be in those teams. And so they're like, well, what do I do now? And there wasn't um, a lot of thought put into how they manage differently now. Uh, rather than than saying you just can't be part of this team, your your focus now is not the day to day task management of a person on a team. It's now the overall health and growth of that person and your and your your whole team, rather than being you know sort of in the weeds with uh, you know the day to day tasks of every single um, direct report they have. That's a an excellent observation, and if there are any managers that are are listening right now, they should really take note of it, note of that because that is the major uh, shift that happens in a, in a manager's job is going from trying to hold people accountable to helping foster growth and innovation and creativity and amongst people and teams. There's also a great opportunity there to, to become um, 
uh, as part of a leadership team and not just a, a leader for your a, your immediate reports is to be that person that a team can escalate to and you can be their champion for blockers that they've not been able to to make any progress on there there is a place for managers in um in an agile environment it's it just may look a little bit different from what you know sort of a a more traditional uh culture would be Okay, one final question for you, Natalie. Okay. What do you see for the future of Agile in the next three to five years? So I've looked at this, um, and actually I, I have thought about this because it's very sort of, you know, tied into my future of employment. Um, sure. And there, there is definitely a trend uh, that I'm seeing that, that Agile experience, knowledge, and the ability to, to coach um, is is more increasingly uh, being expected as part uh, in addition to your core skill set. Um, so, and I and I I see that growing. I see that that as uh, agile practices become more and more um, prevalent, that uh, people will not require agile coaches, scrum masters, that type of thing. And, and you know, sort of my organization is testament to that. We we've gone. Zero Scrum Masters, Agile Coaches, um, and and I think that you know ultimately you would get to potentially get to a place where even that is not needed. Um, but that being said, you know I, I feel like it's a long way for a long way from that, and so it would be probably towards the end of the five years that you would start seeing that, or at least I hope so, so I can keep on feeding my kids. Um, but. Uh, because teams constantly change and constantly, you know, every time you introduce a new team member, um, you know, there's the potential to go back to, uh, you know, a highly underperforming team instead of a highly performing team. So, and sometimes they, so they're so deep in it themselves that they, you know, an agile coach can bring that, that uh, holistic view. But uh, that that is definitely one trend. The other trend, which I'm not a huge fan of, is the, the MWAP tra- trend. You know, making money with agile processes, and uh, the the prevalence of more and more tools to to measure your your agileness, um, and and the uh, the thought that one approach can. Um, uh, can actually apply to all teams. This was something I was just talking to um, a, co- a colleague of mine today about that. You know that it's if you if you think about agile like you think about situational leadership, that that's what you need to do because every team is different and every every you know individual on that team is different, and you can't just apply apply the same technique and the same approach to every single team and think it's going to stick. Well, we'll we'll have to pull this uh, pull this recording out of the archives in three to five years and see how many of your predictions have come true, Natalie. I can guarantee you there will be more agile products out there for you to buy to make you more agile. Excellent! I can't wait for that day, Natalie. I'm so I'm so happy that you've been able to be part of this agile life, and I'm really pleased that you're able to uh, provide this interview for our special 100th episode of this agile life. Yay. Thank you. I, this has been a great year for me and, and being part of this Agile Life is is certainly a highlight for me. So thank you for inviting me to join. ThisAgileLife.com Amos King is up next and he's another host that's been with the show since the first episode. 
There's no guy I'd rather have on my team than Amos. His mix of humor, irreverence, and software agility are unique, to say the least. Hey, Amos, how's it going? Great, John. Did you hear about the kid who got arrested for building a clock? I did. That's terrible. That is pretty messed up. I think that we should have an open carry microcontrollers movement. Oh, I agree. Oh, man. Poor guy. Yes. Life is, is, uh, is a real pain in the butt sometimes. Yeah, it seems like the more nerdy you are, the more you get hit with this stuff, I think. Hmm. <laughs> Could be. Well, we're celebrating our 100th episode, Amos, and I'm here to talk with you about uh, your first experience with agility. So when did, when, did you get, when did the ball get rolling for you with Agile? What was your first Agile experience? Uh, I, they didn't call it agile. It's just the way no, that of course. it had to work for that company. Uh, it was, it was 2002 and I was working, I was in, I was in college. I was actually working in a donut shop and this guy came in and he, I guess he was in there regularly and was talking to the owner and he normally hired college graduates and, uh, or not graduates, students. and he came in and said, I was talking to the owner who said that you're a computer programmer and I only worked at the donut shop one day a week. It was just like some beer money in college. And, uh, he's like, you want to work part time? I'll give you $10 an hour, which sounded absolutely fantastic to me and to write some software. And it was a small company called USA express and they did transportation of people back and forth to the airport from various cities and also to like, uh, dialysis treatments and things like that. Um, it, it was a, it was a neat little place. Uh, there were very few employees. I worked with absolutely every user of the software that I worked with. So that was really nice. Uh, I was actually one of the users of the software, the, the software that I worked on, I worked on two pieces there. Uh, one was, uh, for dispatching drivers and cars and everything. And the other was just their website. The website was kind of left up to me. They like had some specials that they wanted me to put up there most of the time. But other than that, I could just do whatever I wanted. And they would say, yeah, that looks good. Or no, it doesn't after it was already deployed. Um, but that wasn't really the agile one. I would say that the other project was the agile project. And the main dispatcher worked right behind me. And when she was sick, I would normally be the dispatcher. And oh, wow. there was there was one other lady that also um, worked there. She did accounting, but sometimes would help out with dispatching whenever I didn't know what the heck I was doing. So all, th- all three of the users, one of them, including me, uh, were right in the same room. And it was really fantastic to work that way. Uh, I, I like it was in visual basic, which I didn't really know when I started working there, but um there was like a partially built app they had started to use. And just every day I would be sitting there and I would deploy and put it onto a USB stick and plug it into her computer and, and overwrite her exe file and then plug it back into mine and continue to work on the next feature. Continuous delivery. Yeah. It was the first continuous delivery. I had lots of customer collaboration. I mean, I was just sitting there and sometimes if I didn't know what to work on, I would just turn around and I would watch her work for like an hour. And I would also like take notes on 
when she did certain things. Like if somebody called like one of the drivers, she used the software in a very different way than she did for when she was planning for the next day at the end of the day. Um, so I, I, I was able to come up with some good ways to to change that for. Her. And the great thing was I could also roll back really quickly because it was seriously continuous delivery on a USB stick three feet from where it was being developed. Wow, that's amazing. So it wasn't in, it, it wasn't actually intentionally agile. It just right. so, it just so happened that it was. It, yep. it wasn't as if anyone anyone was helping or instructing you or coaching you as to how to how to manage this, right? No, uh, I was kind of my own team and nobody there was really a software person. Nobody there had been trained to be a software developer or a manager of software developers. Nobody had gone through any scrum classes or anything like that. It was just real world work. I mean, this is what I need right now. This is my pain point. Can you fix it for me? And that's how the real world works. So I, I think that really the agile that we have today is just it's just born out of real life and i think that uh, i've had other small jobs like that and they're always that way i think that that's why it works so well so when when do you think was the first project that you worked on that that was with with a group of other developers and it was it was can you talk about that time and and what were how did that get started what was that like for you going from having done, you know, this project and then I'm sure other projects along the way. And then finally to something that was a truly organized, agile, officially agile project. Full-time agile project. So I uh, helped write some uh, chat software, uh, a client and server for the Navy. It was the first time that I came any place that uh, they, they called agile. Um, I had done some side work for a startup that, they called it agile too, but it was really just a buzzword to them, I think more than anything. So yeah, I started working on that Navy project. I walked in the first day and we paired nearly a hundred percent of the time we were doing test driven development. We were having morning standups. It was the first time I had ever had morning standups. Um, I at least called that. I mean, we had meetings, I worked for the postal service and we had like a morning coffee meeting in between the cubicles that was like, Hey, what's happening? And I guess that was a standup, but they didn't call it that. So it was the first people who were trying all these different things and calling them these things. Um, we had weekly meetings with the customer and, and did like a weekly planning. It was very hard iterations and I, I really liked it. We spent uh, a lot of times and that's where my first introduction to retros came from. And I really think that that is what, made people more agile than anything was that that self-reflection of what did we do and how can we do better and what small change can we get to get there and i think that that focus on the retro and what we could change actually helped me focus on that same thing in the software of hey where are we where do we want to go how can we get there with the next small step tell me about how you felt the first just the first few days of of being on that first agile project i mean what were your immediate reactions since this was, I'm assuming that at least working in this manner was new to you. Was the, were the concepts new? And then if they were, how did that, how, how did you feel? Uh, the only thing that was really new to me, like, like the standup was a new concept by name, but, and it was a little more organized than, than the one that I had at the post office. Um, it was more focused 
And but I would I would say that the only like big thing that shocked me that I hadn't really heard about was retrospectives. Um because I had heard of pairing and I really wanted to try it, but never I had like very limited chances to do it. It was more like when I really needed some help, somebody would come and sit with me or I'd go sit with somebody else uh, instead of it just being this is the norm and working by yourself is not the norm uh, for me. Uh, I'm a social creature and I just wanted to learn and soak everything up. So I think pairing was really good for me. It also helped build my own confidence because when I first came to this company, I was really worried about being the dumbest guy in the room. I was afraid to say anything. I always thought all these guys are smarter than me. Every idea I have is probably worthless. So if I had an idea and it wasn't and I started to say it and they were like, well, I was like, OK, never mind. Probably wrong. And I was dropping it. But because I was pairing with them, I would see the evolution of the software and I would realize, hey, I should have pushed that a little more because now we're going back to that idea that I had. Um, and not all of my ideas were that way, but some of them did come back and I, I started to realize like, hey, I need to talk more. I do have value in this pairing relationship. I'm not just here to to learn from them, but I'm also there to to teach and to just work together so that we both come to a better understanding. You felt like you're. Th- you you feel in retrospect like your thoughts and opinions you you could have done a better job of expressing those in your early days of pairing so that's maybe something that you you're telling you're telling us that you could have done better are there are there other things that you think uh, in hindsight retrospectively that you feel like you could have you could have done better as you were getting started with agile and you wish somebody maybe would have given you some direction in that area uh yeah um it's kind of the stuff that i push for a lot making smaller stories make it 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 was really that project i was on that project for a very long time where uh not everybody on the project tried to but where i really started trying to make stories smaller um and and i would also say be willing to add stories as you're working um it took me a long time in that project and for everybody on that project to feel like partway through the iteration, like, or through a story that you're working on, you could be like, you know what, this really needs to get done too, but it doesn't really belong here. At the beginning of when I was working there, we would like scope creep stories until they were gigantic week long things where really, if we had split it off, um, more people could have been involved and we could have spread out that work and really gotten done faster. And it took us almost a year to figure that out, even with people who had been doing it six months, a year, two years longer than I had the thing I really love about small stories and I've been working really hard with a team I'm working with to make small stories is that it just gives you, it, it gives you a, a positive, a, a positive, that positive, I hit the, you know, I hit the pellet lever and I got some positive endorphins running through my body and it, it breeds, it breeds the fact that you want to, you want to do that again. You want to complete another story. And when, when they take really a long time, it's, it's, it's not as rewarding. So Small my stories other, is great advice. My other favorite thing about small stories is it takes a lot less time for you to add a small story on the fly than to add a giant story an hour later. Right? And you're trying to remember all that. Um, and there's less. Uh, what do I want to say? Like leeway back and forth on what that story could mean or the acceptance criteria that you might have missed in the story uh, that. 
really started to come out whenever we would add them on the fly instead of like waiting till next week. Say, hey, I really think we should work on this that I thought about on Tuesday and it's Friday now. Um, I just wish that there was software out there that was simpler to create a story. And I have racked my brain over and over to try to figure out ways to make creating stories simpler, whether that is me writing new software or figuring out how I can utilize current software that's out there to make it simpler to like spin off a story like that and keep moving forward. Um, And I I think that's where most people have pain points and even wanting to add a story while they're working is that a lot of the software out there that we use to manage our projects and our stories is painful to, to add a story. Amos, I have one final question for you. What do you see for the future of agile in the next three to five years? I see a lot. I see a lot of, changes i think that um that there's been a lot of focus on smaller stories for one thing and uh, no estimates and i think that they kind of go hand in hand the smaller you make your stories the more consistently small your stories are the less you ever have to worry about how big a story is because you just add them all up and that is your estimate uh so i i I hope to see that that keeps going um, because I think it's a a good positive move. And then on, on the flip side, unfortunately, I think there will still be people out there who aren't doing agile because they love it and are trying to change it. I think they'll be trying to package up things and, and figure out how to sell certifications for their package. Well, Amos, I'm very pleased that you could, (laughs) you could share the, a little bit of the history of your, your first experience with, agile with our this agile life listeners and you've been with this agile life since the very first episode right yeah all the way back to episode zero i think i uh i might have suggested the name during one of our meetings you you indeed did come up with the name (laughs) as we were kicking Uh, around ideas you you came up with the winner i don't know if i'm i'm happy or sad about that No, actually, I've been very, very happy. It's it's great to be here. You guys are amazing. Uh, going out into the community and meeting people and sharing our experiences and hearing their experiences back has been really, really good for for me and and in my daily work and uh, and sometimes for my sanity, just event with you guys. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to personally thank you and say that it's been a pleasure having you as a host of this agile life for a hundred episodes and, and for also being there to help with, you know, the, the venting stuff and talking through ideas and working through the rough patches when it's, when it's hard to some days keep, keep things alive and keep things going. Well, thank you for uh, coming together and saying, Hey guys, I think it would be fun to do a podcast because that I, I think has been one of the most instrumental things in in how i've moved forward in my career is being a part of this agile life uh so joe just for you uh it's Oktoberfest is coming up and so mother's brewing company out of springfield missouri has an old school Oktoberfest, and it is a fine fine drink and it says it goes great with brats vegetables cabbage so <sighs> it's it's right up right up my alley there you have it and this is 100th episode pick. This agilelife.com. Next, you'll hear from Craig Buchek. Not long after we started this Agile Life, we realized that we needed Craig on the show. He'd always stop us in the office to share his thoughts about the latest episode. 
We finally told him that we wanted him on the show to share his opinions. And boy, are we glad we did. Hey, Craig, how you doing? Hey, John, doing pretty good. Glad to be able to sit down with you and talk a little bit about your first Agile experience. We're doing this with all of the hosts, and I'd love to get your perspective and find out a little bit about your history. So why don't you tell us, what was your first Agile project like? Um, I came to Agile before, really, I was doing projects on, on any teams. Um, my first recollection of doing any Agile practices was um, calling my, fr- my friend uh, Bill Edney up and having him pair with me. I actually paid him his going rate at the time of $60 an hour for four hours to pair with me on some JavaScript stuff. And um, so it went really well. Um, I, I don't recall exactly where I learned all the agile techniques and how I came across it. Um, it may have been the extreme programming books at the bookstore, uh, probably more likely just reading articles on Slashdot. At that time, I was, I was one of the early Slashdot readers and read it daily until like a couple of years ago. So I probably came across it there. So did you know when you worked with your, your friend, what was his name, Bill? Yeah. Did you know that what you guys were practicing was something called pair programming or did you guys just yeah. get together? No, it was something that I had heard of and wanted to try out. So um, it worked pretty well my first time. Um, so I think having that, you know, uh, a good feeling after trying it out the first time was, was a positive experience that helped me want to do more Agile. So that was in back in 2006. And then where did you... How did your agility evolve from there? Um, so the other interesting part of my agile journey was um, learning Ruby. And that was about 2005, 2006 also. And um, so we've, we, when we had uh, Dave Thomas on the, on the podcast, one of my questions to him is, why is agile in the Ruby community so tightly nested? And his answer was, because it's a lot of the same people involved. Um, so the Ruby and the Rails community is particularly agile. Um, the book I read was called Agile Web Development with Rails, with Ruby on Rails, was the, my first introduction to Rails and to Ruby. So, you know, there were, they were already teaching some, some good skills, test-driven, or at least testing uh, was definitely a part of Rails that you didn't, you didn't skip. Um, so it was sort of assumed that you were going to do the right thing there. And, and that's another, assuming people are going to do the right thing is a pretty cool way to get people to, to accept things. Yeah. It's great to have a, an environment like that where it's easy to do the right thing and it's kind of hard to do the wrong thing. Yeah. So my first hardcore agile, I'll call it, uh, was when I started at asynchrony in 2010 and um, so that was the first time I remember talking to Amos. Um, I don't know if it's, it's probably before I applied for the job and I was worried about pairing, you know, eight, eight hours a day, every day. Uh, I'm like, man, I think it's going to wear me out. And, and, and at first it really does wear you out. You know, you're, you're devoting so much energy to focusing and, um, but it's a good kind of tired, you know, you, you fall asleep good and uh, wake up eager the next day. 
when when you were a little bit nervous about the pairing what it wasn't it wasn't the person to person interaction for you it was more of the high amount of focus that you were going to be devoting to your job um i'm sure it's probably some of each um i am an introvert so there is that um so one of the definitions of introvert i've seen is that you recharge by being alone right so it can take energy away from you to to be with other people do you do you think you dealt with that how did you overcome that are you are you entirely comfortable now pairing yeah um i prefer to pair although sometimes i will get lazy and not pair if given the opportunity <laughs> um but usually i'm not going to get as much done when i when i do fall into that trap of laziness um so definitely i am preparing you know six seven eight hours a day if i can okay so your first hardcore agile project as you called it was that successful how'd that go um it was a big project um so i i think i i did pretty well at it um and was i was only on that team for a few months and then ended up on the team that Amos, uh, the, on Amos's team. And that was our, our basically our exemplar high functioning agile team. So, um, didn't spend a whole lot of team. Actually, there was another couple months before in between, but I guess I was pretty lucky to not spend too much time on, you know, low functioning teams. And, um, so I wasn't too long before I was on a fairly high functioning team. But I guess when we got there, it was sort of medium functioning <laughs> and we kind of grew it into high functioning. You started off with pairing as your, as your first engineering practice. What were some of your initial reactions once you were on this full-fledged agile team and, and how it was run with things like stand-ups and retrospectives and demos, et cetera? Um, everything just seemed to make sense at that time, but I think I had already bought into the agile mindset by that time, having read a lot of things, read a lot of articles, especially, um, wanting for, to work for an agile company and, and learn more. Um, at the interview, I remember talking about, you know, not worried, not concentrated on the tech as much in my learning as the processes, wanting to learn more about the processes and how to do them better. So uh, following along that line of thinking about the processes, can you remember back to maybe some of your, your retrospectives that year or, or during that time? And what were some of the issues that you had maybe and, and the team had overall as you guys were, were coming together as an agile team? Most of the challenges are just friction between personalities, really. I don't, remember any specifics but i do remember that that personality issues usually are the 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 raw points when you're getting started um and that's sort of true in any relationship it kind of reinforces though the fact that it's not the technology that's that has all of the hard difficult problems right it's it's the people and the people to people interactions that seem to have the hard difficult problems to solve Soft skills are hard. You got that right. Craig, are there any things that you know today that you wish you had known back on those early days of that <laughs> uh that that project back in twenty ten or, or whenever when you were really getting really getting getting into it hardcore that 
maybe you could have uh, used to do things better or smooth out some of the rough spots? Probably just the fact that, yeah, those soft skills are the important ones is probably the, the, the most important thing that I would have liked to know better. And, and I remember, you know, when I was in college and people talked about networking, you have to network to get jobs and networking, networking. And I didn't understand it, you know, and since I didn't understand it, I couldn't, I couldn't follow that advice. Even if I had, I understood it, I wouldn't have known how to be good at it. Um, so, you know, the advice I can give is, is to, to try to be better at people skills and empathy, but, you know, hearing that advice when you're already not understanding that is, is going to be difficult. Um, but you, you got to try. Knowing sometimes is half the battle. And maybe if you had known, though you would not have necessarily known how to solve those problems, you would have just maybe had sort of a, uh, a higher realization that that was an area in which you needed to focus and you could have devoted more of your time to understanding those problem domains better. Yeah, exactly. Like I talked when I, when I interviewed for that job that I talked about process, but I didn't know I needed to focus as much on, on people skills. All right. Well, that has been a good historical retrospective look back on, uh, on your beginnings with agility, Craig. And now the real million dollar question for you, the one that the whole audience has been waiting for is where does Craig see agility moving in the next uh, three to five years? What, what's in your crystal ball as you gaze deeply into it? So I, I expect two trends to continue. One is the watering down of agile. Oh you no. Know, <laughs> That's already started. Um, you know, everyone calls themselves agile and very few are doing a very good job of it or even headed in the right direction sometimes. Um, so I, I think that will continue how that'll play out. I'm not exactly sure, but I, I'm certain that good teams will continue to get value out of agile, agile practices, whether they'll find a new name for that or not. I'm not sure. Um, but on, on the positive side, I think there will be a couple focuses. Um, one is perhaps happiness and the other is motivation. And we've talked about both of those topics on, on previous episodes. And I think the high functioning teams or the successful teams that are, or, or maybe even the successful, um, methodologies will adopt some of those ideas as they move forward. And, um, so it's interesting that Agile tends to, in some ways, become a synonym for good ideas. <laughs> or I guess Agile teams adopt good ideas. And that's because Agile, good, true Agile teams are always working to improve. And they will see other ideas and incorporate them into their own teams. And I expect that will continue. It's nice to have your, your thoughts and opinions on where we're headed in the industry. I, I always respect the things that you have to say, Craig. And, and I think um, of, of all the hosts, you, you, you are the most diligent with having, uh, having good picks in, in, your, in, your, in <laughs> your pocket, funny. ready to go. You always have some sort uh, of an actionable pick that I want to, uh, to get, dig my fingers into. That's funny you say in my pocket because I actually use the tool called Pocket to tag them. <laughs> See how see what I did there? Uh-huh. 
Well, Craig, I want to thank you very much for being part of this Agile Life. It's been a pleasure having you as a host and hope that we will continue this relationship for many episodes to come. Yes. uh, Thanks for having me and congratulations on making it to number 100. The only host to have his own Twitter hashtag, Jason Tice. Jason is another host that's been with us since the beginning. We've listened to Jason go from Mr. Evil Architect and Mr. Big Enterprise all the way to one of the most well-respected voices of agility in the industry. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Hey, Jazz, good to talk to you. Long time, uh, haven't had a chance to sync up in the past uh, few episodes. Well, you've been so busy. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard we got some feedback in a, a new trending hashtag uh, called Too Much Tice. So. But that's impressive because you have your own hashtag. Wonderful, yes. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, it's all good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you could take a few minutes out of your busy schedule to sit down and talk with me on this special occasion as we celebrate our 100th episode of This Agile Life. And uh, the fun thing we're doing is talking about our first project, our first experience with Agile. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your first project? So my first true experience with what I think we call an Agile project was in, oh boy, make me think here. It was actually in early 2006. And it's a story that I I like to tell because it was a project that was, I want to say a little ahead of its time. So so we going back to 2006, and I don't know if you want to get into some of the details, John, but so early 2006, I, I was new to a company and it's um, it's actually oddly enough, it's a it's a company that at one point all of us on this edge of life, uh, the original crew worked for. And, but what was interesting about this project, like a couple things happened um, that to me were things that we just did because they made common sense. At the time, I, I didn't really know them as agile, but to me, they made sense. Um, they there were things that made sense and things that didn't make sense. So. 2006, I was actually just finishing business school and uh, took a new job. and was put on this project where I sat down on a planning poker meeting and I observed as the team was reading these things called stories, which I thought, okay, whatever. It's like a little a little requirement. And then they guessed with the fake numbers, you know, the Fibonacci's, the one, two, three, five, sevens. And that was how they determined how hard it was. And having nearly completed business school and actually, you know, was going, actually did the PMI then also, I was like, this is a joke, (laughs) but wait, it gets better. I mean, so literally I sat there and I literally said, I have made a career mistake. This organization that oddly enough, people who know I work for, I still work for them. I was like, this is, this is not how YouTube is. This is a complete joke. And I almost, I almost quit. Um, But I decided to give it a try. Because what they were also doing, not only did the team do these story points thing, which I just thought was weird, we actually got paid for the completion of the number of story points each iteration. Wow. So the team would come together. They would say, they would look at the story. Oh, yeah, that looks like a 21 or that looks like a five. And then we would do our work. And at the end of the sprint or sprint, or we call them iterations, then we would do a demo. and if the client thought we did the work and it was acceptable, they would agree to, we could invoice them for at the XPU level. So not hours, um, you know, not a time-based formula. It was actually an effort-based formula based upon the XPU. And of course, the other thing was that if we 
if the, if the client didn't think we had actually completed the story in accordance with what they said, we didn't get paid and we had to do it again for free. Oh, my. Yeah. And so what happened there at the time I was on this team and I joined as a developer, but a bunch of fun stuff happened here back in early 2006 because as a team, we were working and a lot of things we talk about now, we talk about run rates. So this team was not being paid by at, with a time and materials rate. It was strictly a, a straight rate for the team based upon completing work. And so at that point, we had autonomy within the team to basically do whatever we needed to do to make sure we got our work done and the client would pay us in accordance with those, those XPU that we agreed to for the story. And so the, the comment I've told some people is, well, our stories weren't very good. And so we would go to stand up and I would be like, hey, guys. I know we all, we want to code, we want to write tests, we want to get some stuff done today, but does anyone want to go work on the stories to make them better and actually work with the client to flush out the ACs? And eh, some people were kind of interested, but but other people said, yeah, I just want to go code and stuff. And that's all cool. So I said, fine, I'll go work on the stories and get on the conf- get on the phone for like five hours and figure out what we need to do. So when we go over the story and we make that commitment, we'll actually get paid for it. So. It was interesting because it really allowed us as a team to self-manage and to allow the team to anyone on the team to step up and do what they thought was the best thing to provide value for the team. Fast forward now, we've got people like Daniel Pink, you know, walking around talking about, you know, this idea of, um, you know, results oriented work environments. And we, we talk about that we want to get beyond the, the evil billable hour, which says, you know, we want to maximize our time working on code because that's what we're being paid to do. This was back in 2006, and we were actually working as a whole team, and we had autonomy from our client to basically just do whatever we needed to do, including work with them, as long as we could deliver working software. So that's quite interesting because that was a... Uh... That was a, that's a, first of all, it's an interesting start to a project. And then, uh, that's an interesting billable method is to bill on those XPUs. I've actually never heard about a project that worked that way. Yeah. And I know some people have done it like where they look, they run cycle to like, you know, in the, in the no estimate space, some people will run like a cycle time analysis on a story. You like pay per story units, but it's based upon the actual cycle time data not based upon the guest estimate and XPU from the planning meeting. So we would actually like do the planning meeting. We would play planning poker. We would guess the number of story points. Then we, we didn't always have the clients in those meetings. So then we would present that back to the client and there would almost be a negotiation. Most of the time, the client took what we said. But, you know, I say the other thing I thought was cool. One of the key values of Agile is, you know, talking about like trust. And what I think this also showed is that our client was really working with the team as a partner and they were extending trust to the team because, I mean, John, you've talked about in in your whole no estimates talk, you've talked about how, you know, one of the reasons to do no estimates is people could game the system here. If we had gamed the estimates and said that every story was a 21 or, you know, we know it's easy, but we're going to say it's a 21, you know, I mean, Wow. I mean, we, we had autonomy and our client trust. We, to, be fair, to be completely honest, they might listen. They might know who we are. Um, <laughs> we respected them. So we did not do anything unethical. And what's interesting is if anyone wants to do it these days, we've actually learned a lot for how you could do that with less risk. Because you could actually do your little XPU estimates, you know, pay, pay per value. And, um, and then, you know, go ahead and correlate with cycle time. So if we say something's a 21 
and then it only takes us, you know, 30 minutes to get it done. You know, that's a that's a check and balance there. Um, what's interesting is back in 2006, we, we weren't tracking cycle time whatsoever. So we just said, we think it's about a five. Do you do you agree? And if they said yes, then we would commit to it. We kind of knew what our our capacity was based upon those XPU. And at that point, it was interesting because we actually tried to do. I know one of the first spreadsheets that actually I, I found here is a is a kind of a a forecast that actually has financials on it. So instead of just saying, you know, we think we're going to get 20 XPU done this iteration, let's actually go ahead and and do that little trick that I know I've talked about, where when you put dollars and cents on metrics some people start to take more notice. So we actually said, you know, our goal this iteration is to, you know, make like eight grand in revenue. And at that point, that's our target. And it's one thing to say, we're going to try to get 20 units done. It's another thing to say, we're going to try to make eight grand. And then in our next, you know, we, we, we do our demo, our client tells us what they're going to accept. And we're like, oh man, we missed up a few. So we only earned five grand, you know, and those are probably some low numbers, but I'm just, just kind of, talking about the concept here. So Jason, I'd like to go back to something that you touched on as you were kind of introducing getting into this team for the very first time and coming in with your with your fresh business school degree and and sitting down and seeing these guys doing planning poker. And you said one of your initial reactions was, boy, I need to get out of this place. So that was that was that like your was that a real reaction? I mean, was this your sort of first introduction, the very first introduction to the the idea of agile software development? Not really. I mean, so to be completely transparent, before I transitioned to that role, I was actually like helping to lead the introduction of some test automation in a prior job. And at the time we were all we were doing, we we were doing literally, you know, a big like four month software release. But at least we were trying to write automated tests for our work. So if I had to go back in my career to say, what was the first time I did something that I can trace back to being a documented agile practice that had to actually probably be back in about 2003 when we, well, whoa, whoa, I got one more. You make me think here. Um, that was 2003 automated testing, but in the late 1990s, um, and there's a, the individual in the St. Louis area, uh, I'll mention his name. His name's Kyle Cordes works for a, a dev company called Oasis digital. They sponsor um, our local Atlassian group. So this guy, I, literally, my third day on the job as an IT person, I had worked as an intern at a company where I learned how to use ClearCase as our source control system. And this, this guy, Kyle, he, um, he picked up on this very quickly because I was helping. We had, a, we had one of those people Amos likes called a build master. All the person did was do builds. And Kyle observed, he was kind of like just to see what I was doing. And he said, oh, you know how to use ClearCase? Because Kyle didn't. He was a consultant we had hired to come in and help the company. Uh, this was a, it was a, a, a call center company. And what Kyle had done is he had gone in the back and he had gotten an unused uh, workstation and had put it under his desk and had plugged it in and it worked. So it was on the network and then had set up this thing called Ant on it. And then said that, hey, you know how to do use ClearCase, right? So I said, yeah. He's like, well, let's, can you figure out how to give me a ClearCase view that will auto update anytime someone checks in a new change? And I said, oh yeah, that's easy. We just got to set the view parameters up or the config spec for the view up like this. And then literally you could, you know, you could actually write a, you, there were ways to write queries there that would say, what's changed since the last time you queried the view? 
And Miles like, or uh, sorry, and uh, Kyle was like, that's great. Cause then I could use that to trigger this thing called an automated build. So literally my funny story I tell sometimes at agile conferences is on the third day of my professional career as an IT professional, I was sitting down with a consultant and we were setting up a shadow IT environment to do automated builds that was running out a reclaimed box that we got from the storeroom and put under a desk. And we just plugged it into the network and it worked. And if you're in any type of an IT management role or infosec, you're saying wrong, 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 wrong. Because we did all these things that we should have never been allowed to do by policy and security. But I did them on about the third day of my professional career in IT back in the late 90s. So <laughs> I don't know what to say there because that's an automated build, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And at that point, um, uh, it, to his credit, Kyle, Kyle's still around the St. Louis, Missouri area. He's got a great little company called Oasis Digital. Uh, they're a custom dev shop, so um, and they're out helping sponsor our local Atlassian group. They do Jira boot camps, not to give him a commercial here. But I, again, he's in the space, and I happened to bump into him on my third day of working in for a company. And I was like, okay, I'll help you out. So, so Jason, if you can go back to your project you were talking about in 2006, how did that end up? Was it a success? It was the one where you were billing at the XPU level. It's interesting because that company, it, it still it, it it still operates in this manner. It it do, it has the idea of moving people around from time to time. So I was on the project for a period of about five and a half months when all this went down. And there's one more story I got to tell because it involves David Anderson, and um kind of. And then I moved on to a new project, and the project continued, and the team was just kind of doing this incremental. You know, we work with the customer. We agree upon our amount we're going to be paid for this work. We do that literally every two weeks. So in terms of something that I've actually been am presenting on now at conferences is this, how do you write good contracts and how do you set up good business partnerships that really respect both the client and the team when you're doing agile development? I mean, we had this in place back in 2006. So the project continued. The software was in prod. I mean, it had bugs. We had to fix them, you know, all that kind of stuff. It eventually, you know, our support for it, the client kind of took it internal and they they supported it. And and at that point, we actually followed following that where we um, the firm did win some future business or some other business with that same client. So obviously, I'm going to say that's a good indicator of success. Yeah, it sounds like it. But the one other thing that we did on that project and. Uh, it, funny, if, if I have to wonder if Nate Mackey might have talked about this because he he sometimes refers to this as one of the first agile projects that we did at at the company because Nate and I work for the same company, and Nate would have probably been involved before my time. But one of the things that I did that I think Nate would probably give me credit for was we were working in this like home gray homegrown like work management system, you know, to like write stories, and we actually had a, it, it displayed them in a big list. So you could change priority. It was it was not a precursor to an agile tool, but it was homegrown. And it was not usable, but it had a feature where you could print out story cards of all your stories and, and literally print them on big eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. And so you'd have the story on the top and then you could put like details and acceptance criteria on the bottom. Well, so back in, again, the spring of 2006, we were having a hard time keeping track of what we were doing. So I said, let's go. Let's print out all the stories on paper so we did this and then we found a string and we were like working in a cubicle area so we hung the string up across the back of the cubicle and literally what we did is it was a progress bar so when we started our our, our iteration all the stories that we had agreed to with our estimates were on the left side and we didn't have workflow states but what we did is every day at stand up 
we would incrementally move the stories across the clothesline going closer to the right side where we would consider them being done. Oh, that's great. And Nate would, Nate, who was a, in a leadership group at the company at the time, would bring like, you know, possible clients around to like give them a tour. And it became known as the clothesline of progress. In reality, these days, because of David Anderson, who wrote his Kanban book in 2010, we now call that a Kanban board. <laughs> but we did this just because it made common sense back in 2006. And we were just, um, you know, a bunch of devs. And the greatest thing that I think about that is inspiring about telling this story uh, is that it demonstrates and it's a good it's a good sounding board to say what happens when a team has autonomy to self-manage. Because at that point, we didn't care. We were just like, well, throw the stories up on the wall, move them around. You know, is it done? Well, we don't know. And literally, we would we would slide the story backwards like the we had a tester that would do some testing and he'd be like, I found a bug. And he would move the, the story back based upon how bad he thought the bug was. I mean, and none of this was defined. It was. Anything I'd be interested to build an agile tool like that these days that lets you kind of just infinitely move your cards somewhere on a continuum between start and finish and see what happens and then do some analytics. Some might have for trends. Someone's if you're from version one or rally, you should put, build that into your tool and see if people use it. But but yeah, so that's uh that was my last highlight of that was this idea of doing something to make work transparent and uh, having the clothesline of progress that became a, a stop on every tour through our office. That's. A- that's a great story, Jason. Now I have one final question for you, and it's the okay. it's the one everybody's been waiting for. What does Jason think the future of Agile is going to look like in the next three to five years? Oh my goodness. It depends where you are. <laughs> where do I hope we are? Um, I, hope, I hope that we have found a good medium to really, I want to say, do two things. And it's something we've talked about a lot here. We need to respect people. And, and again, like I'm saying here, this story of having a system where the team had autonomy and then also as a part of that system, having a good partnership between the team and the customers or clients they were supporting. So where that was a partnership. So there was something that intrinsically motivated both parties to work together. I would love to see, because right now I think in a lot of environments that is really strained, especially as there's been a really increase in the size of the Agile community. I'd like to see that we have more success stories that are more like, like I'm describing that are more, that are more spread throughout the community and they tend to be more of the norm versus the exception. And the other way I think we're going to get there is we're going to hopefully learn how to measure better and start to base our work on more scientific measurements. So, which is something where I think, you know, people from the PMI community can maybe, you know, again, there are things I learned in business school that have proven to be some of the most, the most valuable things that I do when I, when I really like coach, you know, no estimates, coach Monte Carlos and coach forecasting that I, I mean, I learned in business school and you have to, uh, you have to modify how you apply them but the concepts are sa- are sound, and I, I hope that we see a little more discipline and science injected into how we're we're running agile delivery projects. All right, well, we'll put this one in the archive and pull it out in three to five years, and oh and my see how, god, see I should have right known you were going to say that. Wonderful. <laughs> you, 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 hopefully, we'll still be together then as a podcast. 
Oh boy, sounds like this. Are we breaking the band up? No, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for spending some time uh, telling us all about your first experience, and thank you so much for being a part of this Agile Life for these 100 episodes. It has certainly been a pleasure having you as a member of the, our cast and crew. Well, and likewise, John, thank you so much for everything you've done to to make this reality. And as a reminder, we still need to finish the podcast assurance project. Because I think John is still the only person that can actually post the podcast. <laughs> we will do that. All right, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. This AgileLife.com. Finally, we wrap things up with Jason interviewing me. Take it away, Jason. So, John, we're it's great to talk to you tonight. And I heard we're we're doing some interviews for the hundredth episode of This Agile Life about Agile projects. So, can you tell us about your first Agile project? Sure, Jason. I'd love to do that. Uh, I remember very distinctly when when my first Agile product project was starting because it happened only a few months after the infamous September 11th situation in 2001. Uh, I was doing a lot of work with uh, a company involving marketing programs, and we actually had an offsite vendor that was trying to develop uh, the was developing part of the system that we used for these marketing programs. And, and we had the occasion to go up there and fly up there. And you know how, you know how travel was at that time. Well, yeah, that, I got, I got stuck doing a system rollout in Lake Mary, Florida for three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so, gotcha. so slightly, I guess, I guess really early in 2002 was when we decided to insource that project back to ourselves and we staffed up and uh, we rewrote, we rewrote, we rewrote the entire system, and uh, had a good group of developers around me. And I had done a lot of reading on extreme programming from the Kent Beck books and the series that series of books that came out of the pro- project that those guys did at Chrysler that that C three project or C two or whatever that was. Okay. And so and so that's where I got kind of some of the ideas. And then the developers that I worked with, they had some similar ideas. And so we kind of worked together to put some engineering practices in place. We tried to do, uh, we tried to do continuous integration. We tried to put together a c- continuous integration machine, which was just one that we, we had and we, we provisioned an extra one, you know, from IT and set it up on the network. And we tried to use it as our continuous integration system. Um, we tried to do test-driven development, or at least we tried to do unit testing using JUnit. And uh, we, we, we were learning all of this stuff on our own, though. And we, we've basically struggled quite a bit with, with a lot of the technologies and a lot of the tools. The one thing that we were able to do successfully was uh, plan our work using conversation cards or story cards as they, as they came to be known. So, so I got a question for you because what, what you said is interesting. So did the sponsorship of your project know that you guys were kind of, you know, figuring it out as you went along and, and you know, some, some leadership may not necessarily like that? Yeah, they did not. So we kept it on the down low. This ah, was, okay. I, I felt so uh, it was interesting because when I was, when I was growing up, if you will, as a developer, uh, I was I always looked for ways that 
there has to be a pattern for this, right? There has to be a model. There has to be a better way to go about the process of building software. And I look for things that some of these, back in those days, the big six consulting firms had put together. Uh, they had these huge binders of books that were, here's how you run projects. And it was like, oh my gosh, I mean, this was too daunting. I, I, I did a study group on CMMI uh, a few years before this all happened, but the organization cared very little about the nuts and bolts of how the team did what they were doing. They just wanted to see the results. So they kind of, we were kind of given a certain amount of autonomy, which we yeah. talk about here all the time, right? Given a certain amount of autonomy to just go and make it happen. And only when things would be falling apart or way behind, would you get questioned on why is this happening? How are things working over there? That's good. Cause I was going to say, um, like, so it sounds like, you actually had kind of the what I'm going to call the the good state where that you had autonomy to experiment and learn as long as you kind of did something to help leadership manage their risks and manage their concerns. So did you have like a specific coach or was this truly self-directed learning that was really managed by the team and the people on it? I wish so badly that we had a coach. We were on our own. And it wasn't like today where you could go out to Stack Overflow and post a question or, or tweet something out and get a response, right? I mean, we were we were doing it. We were learning the old school way with books. <laughs> so we would yeah books, and then if you were really nice, you would go put it on Stack Overflow because it was just came online or uh, if if it yeah. was yeah. I mean we so we were really you know we were really leveraging the books heavily to kind of be like, well, what does the book say? And we'd always talk about the book says this or the book says that, and we should try this and we should try that, but. Uh, yeah, we we really could have benefited from coaching. And, you know, the one other kind of thing, meh, maybe it's not a practice, but it's a role. And I want to ask you specifically is, did you have a project manager, you know, or like like an analyst that was working with you, to, you know, really with more of the business viewpoint? Or was this a true just engineering bunch of people writing code and everyone was technical? It was a uh, it was cool because. We had, a, we had a very cooperative and collaborative environment with our business, and we actually had some people that were on the business side that were the managers of the marketing programs that we were working on, and they served as pseudo-business analysts almost, where they, they, would, they would work with us around how stuff was supposed to work, how the marketing programs were supposed to work. I was a combination of the architect the project manager, the technical lead, and, and the team lead for the, for the whole group. So, you know, I did, I did everything and, and probably none of those things very well. <laughs> yeah, but, but to your credit, I mean, another thing we talk about a lot is, you know, generalizing specialist or that, you know, a role is not a person. So to your credit, early on, you know, you were exemplifying that and look where it's taken you. It's, it's demonstrated sure. that there is a huge value in that. So, so was the project successful? And if so, how did you know? Yeah, it was successful. And the, and the reason, one of the main reasons why it was successful was because these, these marketing programs were seasonal, quote unquote, seasonal, right? So we had a short period of time, maybe, maybe uh, three weeks to five weeks where we would, we would 
get one of these new marketing programs in and we had to go through the process of creating the, the supporting infrastructure for the marketing program. And then we would release it. So what, the way we started with was we built this bare framework that uh, it was a web application and we built this bare framework that had the very first marketing program in it. And we released that because we had that to do. And then we just continuously evolved. And what was shocking here was that this was because of not, this was not because of our forethought where we thought, oh, we should, we should release the software all the time, right? It was like, it was just the nature of we had to release it all of the time. Yeah, you had to get it out. And of course, that's where, you know, it's funny because how do you know successful or the software worked? Um, it was, it's interesting. Or, or we, we weren't doing Google Analytics either back then. Oh, think. no, 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 no. It was very interesting because I remember 10 years later, uh, a, a guy that I ran into, he said, oh, I, I used to, I worked at that company. And I said, oh yeah, what'd you work on? And he mentioned the name of the project. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's the project that I did. And he, I said, how was it? And, and he, we talked about it for a while and it was still going and it was still grow, going strong. So it sounds like this organization was doing to really, again, to your credit and the autonomy they gave your group, some elements of agile practices. So obviously you have moved on. Do you, do you know the outcome of the story? Um, yeah. And I was at the company for a while uh, after this project and I moved around and was inside of the company for a long period of time. And what happened was there were other groups that were reading these same books and, and doing similar things. And it, it really started to snowball with some grassroots support. And the organization went ahead and went through its very first agile transformation, uh, mostly from a grassroots perspective. Uh, that, that hit some hard times about four or five years into it and stalled and kind of reversed. And I had, I had left before it, it went bad. Do, do then, you know, do you know why? I don't know all the details of why I have my own suspicions, but I won't, I won't share any of those, but I do it's, know that that company, and of course, Jason, when we're done recording, I'll share with you the name of that company. That company has, Oh no, no, no. Don't violate your NDA. No, because, no, I have no, no NDA. I have no NDA. I just don't want to say it on the air, but the, so then that company had a pause, maybe a couple of years, and then they went out and hired people to come back in and do another scrum based agile transformation for them. See, if you've, but see, if you've studied um, like change management, if you could do it yourself, it's the change is so much less abrasive and aggressive than when you hire an outside firm to help you. So it's, yeah, it's, it's phenomenal to hear that you had success internal. You even sounds like you had some adoption across the org and yeah. then it's just literally, it sounds like a reorg. I'm going to guess probably. Right, it's exactly. You hit the, the new nail. guys. I don't like this. I don't think blah. You hit the nail on the head. You must use my sacred SLDC. <laughs> okay. So I guess based upon that, are there things that you know now that you wish you had known back then? Um, always, always and forever. I mean, I guess, I guess I wish I knew more about lean and, and how to use lean practices, because I think that there were things that I kind of did blindly at times that were wasteful. You know, there was a lot of speculative code that was written and, uh, you know, overgeneralization that maybe we did. And I, I think that maybe knowing more about lean processes and uh, and how how you can adapt lean to a software development project would have been super helpful. Anything else? And experience with 
technologies and the tools. I mean, sometimes I think that that is overlooked, but this was in a, this was in a day when it just, it just wasn't as easy as it is now to start up. Um, we didn't have the IDE support. We didn't have, we didn't have a lot of the refactoring support. And I remember one time we had gotten pretty far down a path of a certain patch package structure in, in a Java project. It was this particular project that I was talking about before. And we decided we needed to reorganize the package structures and it took like a week and <laughs> it literally, and, and uh, you know, today you could do that in, you could do that in five or 10 minutes. Yeah. Or, you or you, you'd write a, you'd write a curl script that with <laughs> a curl script with a regex that would go through your Java code base and like, look for the package name in, in the top of all the files and then do a, a global search and replace. Yeah. Yes. Actually, I have, I have a book about like scripting like that and you know where it is right now. Hold your um, monitor up. No, it, it's <laughs> in my closet on the, on the air vent to like force the air conditioner to blow further down the line. Cause I don't, I don't care if the closet's hot. So how did others on the team react to agile? Like, well, you know, it sounds like you had you guys were just hanging out doing things again that made sense. Yeah, they were we didn't call it that. You know, we called it extreme programming. So, um I I got I mean everyone was everyone was really supportive of it and on board and it was like it was new stuff, it was exciting stuff. You know, we'd go and talk to friends in the department about it and it was it was it was a lot of fun. So, we had a great experience. That's it. You made me think of something like really meta there is that, you know, what I like about XP is that it says programming. And if anything, you can you can push that back at me, John, because I don't you know, I'm very much about measurement and kind of, you know, value streams, not a whole lot of technical stuff, you know, programming anymore. Just that's where I've kind of pivoted to. Would we be in a better place if instead of having agile, which has opened other things that are needed and the whole focus on people and respect and empathy? If we, I don't know, maybe we had an agile programming here. We kept the P word in there. That would make it where we we don't simply neglect all the technical things that you do need to focus on for this to work. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily gets overlooked or neglected. I just think that it it gets it, it's viewed within the context of the overall picture of what is required to develop software, and and programming is a huge part of that. But it's not the only part. So I think it gets its I think it gets its fair due. Where do you see Agile in the next three to five years? I think you'll really like this answer, Jason, because <laughs> what? You, We're going to implode? Yeah, you I mean, you know my mode of operation, right? I give I I throw really We're wild. gonna fire We're gonna fire everybody. Yes. Exactly. That's, that's the way I go. I go, I go ballistic off one end of the spectrum and I'm, and I'm, I overdo it and I'm like, fire everybody. And okay, Donald. Yeah. You're fired. No, not that. I'm going to deport everyone. <laughs> so here's In 30 days. Here's, here's what I want to see happen. Uh, or what I, here's what I think will happen. I think that there's going to be a schism in the agile community. Big word, right? That's a $5 word schism. Schism. There, there's going to be a, a break between the people that are scrum and the people that are other, whatever you are. And I think that scrum is going to start becoming to the other as project management institute PMI PMP is to agile today. Um, it will, it will start becoming that, um, 
big brother, you know, structured, uh, silly structured thing that, that people maybe start with as a way to get going. But then they quickly realize that there's ways to lean out the process. There's overhead in the process. There's overhead in, in splitting things up into certain roles. And so what I think is going to happen is that you'll have people that still do scrum because it works and, um, it's, it's not too hard to get started with, but what you'll see is that other groups will start to pull away from that into this, this other space, which is going to be, I think, much more focused on lean and lean product ownership and lean startup with a, with a flavor of agile engineering practices wrapped around it. That's my, that is my prognostication for the next three to five years. Where will, where will David Anderson be in all that? In Sweden or wherever he lives. (laughs) And most importantly, since it's an episode of this agile life, number 100, where will Joe Barnes be in all that? Right. Oh, Joe. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. He'll probably be the, the new host of this agile life. Yeah, in, in awesome. three to five years. Ah, that's okay. We need to have Joe on again. So, but listen, John, I think that's all the questions we have for today. I thank you for sharing. Thank you for interviewing me, Jason. Um, it's been a pleasure being a part of this Agile Life for 100 episodes. And of course, thank you for your efforts to bring it together and make it happen. So, it's been my pleasure. I've loved it all, every step of the way. We'll both keep, go and keep living this Agile Life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.